I'm going to be reading in just a moment from 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you want to open a Bible and uh, be prepared to read with me, 2 Timothy chapter 3 in just a moment. We are in the 10-week series that we're calling Building Blocks for a Christ-like Life. If you wanted to build a life like Jesus, whom we think lived life better than anyone that's ever drawn a breath, how would you go about that? How would you do that? And so we have been identifying these building blocks that uh, come together to form this awesome life that is like Jesus. And uh, we, it just coincidentally happens to be ten of the biggest or most significant doctrines in the Christian faith that we are addressing as we uh, look at these building blocks. So a couple of weeks ago we looked at who is God? Small question. Last week we, we talked about what is salvation? And so I, I'm just curious, um, when you start talking about these big doctrines and you're having conversations in your group and you're having conversations maybe with friends uh, at work or in your other social settings, what's, a, what's the opinion that you're getting about these different things? What kind of engagement are you getting about these kinds of things? So, for example, the question about the Bible. Should it be authoritative in our lives? Uh, I would love to hear from you about some of the conversation that you might have with others in this week following today's conversation. Because no doubt, as I've had often with people, some would reply, well, you can't give too much authority to the Bible because, after all, it's kind of a collection of fairy tales. You know, it's just got these nice little stories, not too unlike uh, Aesop's fables where... They're interesting, and there's a moral to them, and there's something you can learn from them. But you don't want to give too much authority to all that. you got it from there all the way to the other end of the spectrum where one psychotherapist said, anyone who takes the Bible seriously is demonstrating a sickening form of dependency that ought to be addressed in long-term therapy. So those of you that just uh, quoted and read scriptures around the house... Didn't mean to out you, but uh, according to this guy, you need long-term therapy. What's with you? Seriously, how much authority should we give the Scriptures? How important is the book? Well, let's talk about that for a few minutes. Is the Bible authoritative? Let me mention to you in the first place the uniqueness of the Bible. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but it is, it is extremely unique. As uh, you may be aware, it is not one book. It is 66 books collected together, 39 that we call Old Testament, 27 that we refer to as New Testament. And its composition is remarkable in that it was written, it was penned, over 1,500 years. Now, you think it takes you a long time to write a letter or an email. 1,500 years to compose the Bible with over 40 different authors. And yet, in all of the diversity that is represented by those generations and by those cultures and, and tribal idiosyncrasies, and the events that were going on in a certain day and political climate, etc., 
all of that diversity that's going on in the composition of the Scriptures, there's this remarkable thread of, of unity and, and continuity that goes from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation. It is unique, one of a kind, nothing else even close to it in its composition. And then it's circulation. No book has ever been circulated around this globe as much as the Bible. There were literally hundreds and millions of copies of the scriptures around the globe. It is the most published book ever. What other book has been on the bestseller list for 300 years? It's utterly unique in its circulation and in its translation. Currently, it's been translated in over 1,200 languages. And as we speak, there are literally teams of people all over the globe that are devoting the best hours of every day in a full-time work kind of effort to translate it in still yet new and different languages. It's the most translated book by far, ever. And it's also unique in its durability. There has been no book that has had the assault on it from culture and naysayers that this book has had on it. it has, there has been attempt after attempt to eradicate it, to ban it, to burn it, to purge culture of it. And it just keeps on keeping on. It outlives all of its critics and opponents. And it's unique in its claims. Most books feel grateful if you've read them one time. And usually after you've read a book, it goes on a shelf and it collects dust until you give it away at some other little occasion. Very seldom are they picked up again and read over again. But the Bible, especially by serious readers, seems to never be finished. Even though you might have read every word from Genesis to Revelation, there's just this sense of there's more that I want to get out of this. There's more that I want to glean from this. And so many of us have spent years and years, even decades, Studying it over and over and over and, and finding new meaning and new nuance, new application, new uh, yet-to-be-seen revelation of who God is and what God is like and what God is up to. And not only that, many of us testify to the fact that reading and practicing the teachings of the Bible have changed our lives has changed our worldview and our perspective on everything. Has instilled in us a whole new value system. I mean, what other book has those kind of claims? Absolutely unique. But the Bible is also accurate. Uh, so much for uniqueness, but if it was false, if it was untrue, if it was inaccurate, who cares? but is absolutely and utterly accurate. Think about that historically with me for just a moment. I've already told you it was composed over 1,500 years. 
it contains a good bit of the history of those 1500 years within its pages. How historically accurate is the book? In fact, there have been a lot of charges through the years that the Bible is pretty inaccurate and filled with contradictions. But here's the reality, friends. The longer that science and archaeology have sought to disprove or to validate the historicity of the book, the more they've come to see it has been accurate all along the way. For example, it used to be troublesome to scholars years ago when uh, civilizations and people groups that were named in the Bible couldn't be verified in archaeology. So, for example, there's this Hittite nation that's referred to over and over again in the Old Testament. And archaeology could find no evidence that that civilization ever existed for years and years and years. And so the conclusion by many was, well, then the Bible must be wrong. The Bible must be inaccurate. But in 1906, archaeology finally discovered through a dig evidence of the Hittite nation. And when archaeology began to follow the clues that were revealed in that dig, it led them to another dig and to another dig and to another dig until eventually they unearthed evidence of over 40 cities that were part of the Hittite Empire. And the Bible was validated once again in glowing colors. And then there are other historical questions like in Daniel chapter 5. The period of time that's depicted in Daniel chapter 5 is a time where the historical records clearly point out that a guy named Nabonidus was king of Babylon. But when you read Daniel 5, it says a guy by the name of Belshazzar is king of Babylon. The Bible says Belshazzar is king. Historical books and records says Nabonidus is king. And scientists tended to say, well, it must be the historical record. It couldn't be the Bible. But in 1956, archaeology unearthed three different historical stones. And as they began to dust those things off and translate and read what those stones said, here's what we found out. That in the period depicted in Daniel chapter 5, Nabonidus was in fact the, empire, the emperor, the king of the Babylonian Empire. But he also went for an extended period of time, of years, to faraway places with the bigger part of the Babylonian army to fight battles. And while he was away on the battlefield, he put his son on the throne in his stead to rule until he came back. And his son's name just happened to be Belshazzar. So we can go on and on with those kinds of examples. But historically, the Bible has always been proven again and again, once archaeology could catch up to it, to be reliable. So much so that Jewish archaeologist Nelson Gluck said, it may be categorically stated that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference, not even once. And then with respect to accuracy, what about the transmission the copying of it over and over again. How reliable is that? I mean, after all, this is a long time ago, and they didn't exactly have big pens and 
paper like we do and capability to, to record things the way that we record things now? Well, most of us, when we went to college, either got exposed to or actually had to read and spend some time studying ancient thinkers like Plato and Aristotle and be exposed to their thought. And no one in the presentation of their thinking and their writings ever questions whatsoever the reliability of the transmission of those documents from ancient times. Yet, you may not be aware that the writings of Plato and Aristotle have fewer than ten handwritten copies that survived through the centuries to validate that what we actually have and have said they've written they are accurate. Less than 10 copies, and yet no one ever questions the validity of those writings. How many copies would you guess there are of the Scriptures? I mean, wouldn't it be cool if uh, there were 20 or 50 or even 100 so that you could say, you know, it's 10 to 1 more copies of the Scriptures than of Plato and Aristotle? In actuality, there are 14,000 copies, ancient manuscripts, transmitted through the years so that you can look at what's in your copy, your leather-bound copy or whatever you have today, and compare it to something that was written 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, whatever, and see, word for word, it has been reliably transmitted through the centuries. The Bible is the single best documented piece of ancient literature there is. There is not another ancient piece of literature that even comes close to having that much documentation. Let's not only talk about uniqueness and accuracy. What about credibility? You go, okay, now, Scott, now you're talking. Because you see, that book, and I've taken a little look at it. It talks about big floods and big boats full of animals. It talks about a whale swallowing a guy and barfing him up and he goes on to preach. Come on. People walk on water? Dead people are raised from the dead? How credible can you say the book is when it's got all that kind of fantasy in it? Well, you don't want to confuse the content of the book which is primarily about God, with God. Because you see, if in fact, and I don't have time to unpack that today, we did that two weeks ago, when we talked about who is God. If you want to get that CD, those are still available. If you in fact have a being that is non-contingent, that is otherworldly, that is limitless and all-knowing, if you in fact have a being like that, and there would be a book that would collect the stories of that being, wouldn't you expect that they would have revelations or stories about the limitless activity of this limitless God? And so your issue at that point is the credibility of a God, not so much the book that contains the record of that God. And so I would suggest if stories of miracles, supernatural events, are troublesome to you, then that really takes you back more to 
can I really believe in God or not? If you can believe in God and that he's limitless as he claims to be, then it just makes sense. He does limitless type things. And if we were to record them, they would be pretty spectacular stories. So that he'd have the power to do floods and famines and healings and resurrections and everything else. But more than that, when you begin to read the Bible and think about your own life in light of what the Bible says about life, I find it remarkably credible with what it says about me. And about my broken, sinful proclivities. And my frail, fickle ways. And how my heart is prone to wander in self-destructive ways. In fact, I find the Bible too credible (laughs) in terms of what it says about me. Sometimes I wish it wasn't that credible. It's very, very credible. And then I'll just mention briefly in the last place, in terms of how authoritative should we think the Bible to be, it's inspired. It's inspired, which is to say God breathed, God authored, God originated. Now, the Bible claims that for itself. And I ask you to look with me in 2 Timothy chapter 3. One of the references to how the Bible itself claims that it is inspired, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. The text says that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's all inspired. And it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the person of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what the Bible says about itself. It claims to be inspired. But that kind of raises the question, is there any substantiation for that claim? And so let me just say in the second place that the Bible is filled with what we call prophecies. These are ancient sayings that were being predictive of the future. And these prophecies substantiate its inspiration. We could talk about a dozen different things, but let's just talk about Jesus for a minute. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, ancient prophecies were written and recorded so you couldn't like fudge about them and and somebody said something about how a Messiah would someday come and when it happened differently they could kind of change it. It was written down and recorded. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus that he would be born of a certain lineage, that he would be born in a certain way like virgin birth. Don't see that kind of thing every day. That he would be born in a certain town, Bethlehem. All that was prophesied. And that he would die a certain kind of death. And that he would rise from the dead. All that was prophesied. I could go on with dozens and dozens of more little nuances to the life of Jesus. All of which were absolutely consistent and fulfilled in who he was and what he did when he was on this planet 2,000 years ago. 
There was an ancient prophecy by Ezekiel. As God began to move on his heart about the city of Tyre, a major powerful city in its day, T-Y-R-E. And Ezekiel was impressed by God to say, God's going to judge that city. And there will be a day when that city is leveled. Not one stone will be remaining upon another. And a, a city will never be rebuilt on that site again. Now, that's a pretty audacious thing for a guy to say, prophet or not. I mean, that's about like me saying, you know, that little place down there called San Francisco. I mean, it's so out of whack with God right now. The day is going to, you know, you, you think not only is that audacious, that's kind of deluded. Who does God think he is to make such a claim? But yet what Ezekiel said is exactly what happened. You can make a trip to the Holy Land today. They can take you to the geography, the spot where the city of Tyre used to be. And you can see some of the rubble that's still around there. And to this time, there's still not been another city built on that site, just like Ezekiel said. We could talk on and on about how prophecy substantiates the inspiration of the Bible. But let me also hasten to point out Jesus taught that the Bible is inspired. Now, whatever you think about Jesus, most ascribe to him great morality. Most would say he may be the, the most moral man that ever lived. I don't know if he's Messiah and God and all that kind of thing, but he certainly was the embodiment of morality, which would include honesty and truth-telling. Yet no one single individual in the book claims the divine inspiration of the book more than Jesus. In fact, he went on to say that none of these words will ever perish. They will all continue and live on eternally. And then I would just say, if none of that is compelling to you, run it through the grid of your own life. Read it. And see if you don't think that it's inspired. I would challenge you and encourage you to read portions of it every day for 30 days. Give it a 30-day test. And I would point you to something like John, the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Luke. And just begin to make your way through that and, not, and see if God doesn't resonate. Begin to communicate in such a way, interact with you. So you begin to see that there is something divinely inspired about it. Many of us have done that. And we have concluded it's God-breathed. Now, if the Bible is unique, accurate, credible, inspired, so what? So what? Well, if it is everything that I've just said that it is, friends, then that would suggest we must pay serious, wholehearted attention to what the Scriptures teach and call forth from our lives. The Bible has sweeping things to say about you and about me and what we're like and how we're broken and how one can repair and, and heal and restore us. And his name is Jesus. 
and that there is no other way. It has some sweeping things to say about us and about how life was designed to be lived. Do I give it that kind of position in my life? If it, if it is what we've just said that it is, then how could I make a choice to live my life, my one and only life, in a disjointed, incongruent way with divinely inspired Scripture? And so I want to know, what does it say about me having a relationship with God? What does it say about how a marriage should be experienced? About how parenting of children should take place? What does it say about when my relationships with people get all crazy and, and, and disturbed and, and disintegrated? How do I go about reconciling and rebuilding those things? What's the Bible say about money and possessions? And how I should conduct myself, myself with those things? What's it say about... The care for the body and the attention we pay to health, etc. About planning for a future, about making decisions. The Bible has a lot to say about all those things. And if it's everything that we've just said that it is, then it behooves us to bring our lives into alignment with what God says life ought to be looking like. Thus, it becomes a key building block upon which we build a Christ-like life. But not only is it just full of all this instruction stuff, the Bible tells me how God is bent and inclined toward me to comfort me in times of distress. That God wants to lovingly rebuke and correct me. You're going the wrong way, son. Turn around, let's go this way. How he wants to affirm me. You know, I get all crazy and try to declare my worth through what I can accomplish and what I can demonstrate. And God says, you don't have to get into that rat race or onto that treadmill. Just know, I say, you're worth so much to me, I gave Jesus for you. I value you. And he brings perspective to my past. And he brings clarity and wisdom to my present. And he brings a sense of hope and confidence about the future. And all that comes through the Scriptures. So you go, well, I kind of tried to look at the book one time and it, it just was a little bit closed to me. It just didn't always make sense. Well, friends, that's why we offer our Meadowbrook Institute, the Mike's classes every week. That's why we have these small groups going on so that you can be involved with others in, in that kind of conversation and study. That's why we do some of the teaching piece to every Sunday's worship gathering. Because we're committed to helping us be people of the book. You go, what? Everything you say may be true, but I just don't know that I want to give that much effort and that much time to the Bible, well then, I would ask you, what's your plan B? I mean, what's going to be your truth source? You're going to go by your own intuition, by what seems right to you, 
kind of what goes with the flow of everybody else and everything else. Friends, those are recipes for disaster. And you only get one life. You only get one pass through this time. And we're about building a life now that serves us well for all eternity. There's another life to come. This is like a blip on the screen. The other life to come is the one that goes forever. And so, my encouragement would be for you to respond to what we've been talking about and thinking about today this way. Respect the Bible. I don't mean worship it. But honor and respect what God has sought to give us through the book. Submit to the teachings of the Bible. I know that they often go against the flow of the way culture is going. But which one's right? Which one has the promises of God with it? And which one promises disaster, ultimately? And carefully follow the instructions. Let's pray about that together. So, Father, in these moments, we've just given some thought, not even that much study to the Bible. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would bring conviction and clarity to our hearts. What's right? What's best? What's the way of life? What's foundational upon which we build? I pray that you'd stir and motivate and encourage our hearts to take in your word like the very air that we breathe. In Jesus' name, amen.